Our thanks to the reader and the uh, choir for that very evocative anthem this morning. Our theme is, uh, we've already hinted at it several times, on this, the last Sunday before Lent, is the transfiguration of Jesus, the event that Don has just read for us. Last year we looked at Luke's account of the transfiguration, and uh, as I preached that last year, I brought out certain things from the text. This year I want us to focus on this passage in Matthew's Gospel in relation to what we might call discipleship themes. We're going to look at four directions or states of discipleship this morning, looking at this passage. I want to tell you what they are before we start. Up, staying put, down and out, and with. Up. First, discipleship of Jesus takes us up. Jesus takes three of his disciples, sometimes known as the inner three, up a mountain. And very often, when we have heightened religious experiences, we talk about mountaintop experiences, sacred summits in our Christian discipleship, high religious experiences, occasions where God seems very real and very close to us. And therefore, often occasions where we sense our own smallness or a sense of insignificance. And so get a different perspective on life, seeing what's really, really important. In a famous book about religious experiences, William James, that was the author, suggested that they normally contain four qualities. The first quality he called ineffability, no, don't go to sleep. Ineffability by which he meant a religious experience is an experience that you can't quite capture in words. It's beyond them, Uh, though they're all you feel you've got to inadequately describe what's happened to you. Secondly, he said that religious experiences have, wait for it, a noetic quality. That is that although we can't express or define them adequately, we somehow know deep inside that they contain truth and meaning. The experience of the divine isn't totally outside our understanding at all, otherwise we'd never know we'd had one. Noetic means that you know something instinctively or intuitively. We just know this experience of God is true. My mother used to say when she was in one of her more argumentative moods, I know in my knower, she said. I doubt whether she knows the word noetic, and she's probably none the worse for it, but she's expressing what it means. The third quality William James suggested is that religious experiences are transient. They come and go. They're not permanent. It's like a wave. You try and hold it and all you've got is flat water in a bottle. And the fourth quality of an encounter with the divine is that it happens to us rather than we inventing it or trying to create it, which technically you can't do. 
Certainly, we can pray for a religious experience, we can seek it, we can put ourselves spiritually in a position where we feel we're more attuned to receive God. That's partly what Lent's about. But in the end, it seeks us. And so in our reading today, this is clearly the kind of religious experience that happens to Peter, James and John when they go up the mountain. They quite literally have a mountaintop experience. They watch jaws dropping. They hear God speak. It's a revelation. That's partly what the brightness of this story is about. This event is meant to illuminate. It's meant to shine laser-like clarity upon who Jesus is so that they see it more than ever before. Gosh, they say to one another, this Jesus who we followed for months and months and months around the countryside now and seen him do this and do that, and quietly behind the scenes said to one another, what do you make of all this? Suddenly we see it like we've never seen it before. God has said, this is my beloved son. Now listen to him. And that wonderful revelation is one that many people have had down the centuries in one way, shape, or form, including many of us here. In a multitude of ways, we have got to a point where we have said of Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, yes, He is. I see it now more clearly than I've seen it before. I believe it. And although we can't create a mountaintop experience for ourselves, we can, nevertheless, choose to believe that he is who he says he is and make that leap of faith. Because do you know that sometimes you make that leap of faith first and that's when you experience God most? It's that way round. And if you've never made a conscious decision to affirm faith in Jesus Christ, so he's not just a Lord or even the Lord, but he is my Lord, then you can do that today, even at the end of this service. But mountaintop Experiences, rare though they are, don't always happen at the beginning of our Christian discipleship. They don't hear. Jesus is not recorded in Matthew's Gospel as walking by the Sea of Galilee in Matthew chapter 3, seeing men's mend nets and saying to them, follow me, and taking them straight up a mountain where he's transfigured before them. There's months in between. Our discipleship of Christ is a process, it's a long walk. And at points in the process, like the growth of a child who comes to walk and then talk and then reason, there are points of revelation, growth points if you like, where God comes close and we see and we know. And some of us in this room don't have to say, yes, he is my Lord for the first time. You've done that a long time ago. But each transfiguration event draws out of us that question, do you still believe? 
Yes, Lord, I still believe you are who you say you are. And who knows, today that reaffirmed experience might be yours today. So discipleship of Christ involves going up and becoming a follower of Christ lifts you up. The second state of discipleship in the story is about staying put. There they are up the mountain. Jesus shines radiantly before them. They hear the voice of God declaring who he is. It's fantastic. Not only is Jesus declared to be who he has hinted he is, but there are Moses and Elijah, the embodiment of the law and the prophets, the key features of Peter and James and John's Jewish faith. And the voice recedes, and the brightness ends, and Peter decides it's a good idea to make things more permanent. Let's build some dwellings, he says, so we can stay here longer, here on the mountainside, here on this holy hill. Let's settle down and bask in the moment. Let's keep it as long as we can. But remember what I said was one of the four qualities of religious experiences. It's transient. We all live on blessed memories to some extent. That's perfectly normal. That's why some memories are blessed. But in discipleship terms, staying put is deadly when God wants you to move on. It's time to go down the mountain now, Peter. Come on. No, Lord, no. Uh, you can't do that. It's been such a blessing. Let's stay here. And what an irony. A place where the closeness of the Lord was experienced becomes a shrine. And the longer it stays there, a shrine of something that happened receding in time and receding in time. Because the Lord's gone somewhere else. He wanted us to go along, but we wouldn't move. With the result that the description of our discipleship is that it's static. We're still spiritually dining out on our powerful experiences of God in 1987 and 2006, they were marvelous. We're still in the same place that effectively we were a decade ago. We're still devoted to carrying the heavy rucksacks of tradition that we think are marvelous, but actually in the end of the day, all they do is slow us down. Is our discipleship of Jesus live and active, or is it in fact static. And if it's static, what are we going to do about that as a new opportunity of Lent presents itself? The third direction or state of discipleship that emerges in this story from Matthew's Gospel might be described as down and out. Down and out in two senses, the first of which I've already hinted at. That is that discipleship of Jesus becomes down and out when our faith has fossilized. 
a faith remembered but no longer truly practiced. I remember going to Canvey Island on a mission. It's the only time I've ever been to Canvey Island in my life. I went on a mission from Cliff College and I stayed with a a local church member and noticed in the back garden of the next door neighbor was a huge boat. Well, I had to ask her about it and she told me that the man next door had apparently made it his life's work. He'd spent 20 years building it, painting it, repainting it, repairing it from time to time. But there was one obvious issue. And the woman chuckled as she pointed it out. You could never get the boat out of the back garden without it being taken to bits again. The one thing that that boat had never done was hit the water. And without a repeat of Noah's flood, which incidentally God has has promised won't occur again, it never will. But I want to focus on another aspect of down and out. You see, Jesus dismisses Peter's attempts to make a shrine or a settlement and sets off down the mountain and out to the surrounding countryside. There are people to be met, there's ministry to be undertaken, there's mercy and grace to be preached, there's healings to be wrought, there's miracles to be worked, there's God to glorify. Now think for a minute. Realize again just how much the Jesus ministry is about being down and out. Down to those in the dregs of society, the unclean and unwanted, reaching out to those who needed him the most. And the task of the church is about both downreach and outreach. Come on, says Jesus to the three disciples as he sets off down the mountainside. Down and out, we've got work to do. And Jesus still calls his disciples to follow him down and out. Perhaps he's calling you. Perhaps you're wrestling this very morning with a sense of call. It might be what we might call an extensive call, which will shape your life and your work and the rest of your life. It could be a more modest call, which is still properly important in the work of God, where it's to do this rather than this. In which case, if I'm talking to you this morning, be obedient. And perhaps genuinely, some of us can't do what we once could for the Lord. Because for the best will in the world, just at the moment, but I hope it's going to be put right, I couldn't go on a 20-mile sponsored walk. I wish I could. Just like you wish you could probably do something that you once could do. The spirit's willing, the flesh has gone into a part-time mode. I remember the phrase of a minister when people in the church wanted to start a fresh expression of church in a local shop in the town. I can't do that, she said, but I do want to support those of you who can. And that's why we as individuals and as a congregation support various causes. God calls us to be generous and although 
I can't. We can. Supporting causes and being generous doesn't absolve us from going where Jesus leads us and doing what Jesus wants of us. In the end of the day, you can't, at least in terms of Christian discipleship, pay for somebody else to do what God has asked you to do if you're able to do it. But equally, when we cannot physically or emotionally do certain things anymore, that's often the time when we've been given resources that once we did not. And disciples then see those resources as gifts to be given for the purposes of God because I can't anymore, but we can with my support. Down and out because of us. And fourth and lastly, the word with. Up, staying put, down and out, with. Look at verse 9. As they were coming down the mountain. Not as Jesus came down the mountain. He's talked them into it. I can almost hear them, it's a Yorkshire word coming out again, I can almost hear them chuntering as they walk down the side of the hill. I'd have been preferred to walk. It's a lot better staying up there. I don't know why we're going back down here. And I can almost see Jesus sort of doing that sort of thing that my wife does so well. So he goes, <laughs> off. Bless them, they don't get left behind perhaps murmuring and mumbling a bit, they recognize the radiance and the voice of God has gone and Moses and Elijah have disappeared and they follow Jesus down the mountain into the ministry of being his disciple, of going where he goes, of sharing what he does, of being with him. And of course, and this becomes clear in all the gospel narratives of the transfiguration, from the moment Jesus gets to the bottom of the mountain, he sets his face to Jerusalem, where he will be arrested and beaten and tried and crucified. Down from the glorious affirming presence of God, and from that moment, closer and closer and closer, to the place from which God seems almost to have disappeared. Being with him was a way of indicating that a person was a disciple. That's why later in the story, the same Peter is asked in a courtyard, did I not see you with him? I tell you, I don't know the man. So the acid test of discipleship is to inquire whether we, me, you, whoever, are still with him. Or are we somewhere else? Being with him doesn't mean that no tragedy befalls us or that we're exempt from getting the same diseases as everyone else or that our hearts are never broken or that we're never betrayed. But it does mean that through it all and in it all, he is with us. Jesus, the Son of God, Emmanuel, the God who is with us, is with us.
What's that old gospel saying? I do not know what the future holds, but I know who holds the future. And that makes everything possible and fills every place with hope. It's the end scene of a movie, a film. The relationship between him and her has been on and off for the past two hours, but now they've decided to spend the rest of their lives together. He arrives to pick her up in the car, and she runs out with her bags packed, throws them in the back of the car, and leaps into the passenger seat. And as they drive off together, he says, don't you want to know where we're going? No, she says, I'll go where you go. Brothers and sisters, in what state as we approach Lent this year is our discipleship? Up? Static? Down and out? I know this. Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I will never turn away. So in whatever state you find yourself this morning, you can go from this place with him. Amen.